crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome to Watch Jerusalem. I'm Brett Nuktagal here in Jerusalem, Israel. Thank you very much for joining us today. Today we'll be going through a recent study which has to do with the writing in ancient Israel from about 2,800 years ago. We're going to look at this study in relation to the Bible and show how these artifacts confirm what we uh, could expect uh, from the biblical text. First, I want to thank Christopher Eames for taking last week's program about the Netherlands, making up the ancient Israelite lost tribe of Zebulun. And this, I think, is the fourth program in this series, going through the Lost Ten Tribes. Uh, they are receiving a bit of feedback, and I'll go through some of that now as well. Uh, this is from Teresa. She says, in relation to this program from last week, I found today's program extremely interesting and informative. I really enjoyed learning about the history of the tribes of Israel. Please continue to expound on the rest of the tribes, proving the validity of Scripture so accurately. This uh, is knowledge that benefits any student of the Bible and history. Truly a valuable gift. Thank you. Again, that was from Teresa. This one comes from Kalgoorlie in Western Australia from Duncan. He says this, love your website, unable to absorb all of your awesome articles. Uh, he loves it particularly when the science proves the Bible correct. It should be in reverse in that the Bible finally proves pagan science on the right track at last. Your article on Beth Shemesh says the Ark may be discovered soon. And he talks about uh, a book, uh, The United States and Britain in Prophecy, relating to that. Then he writes, keep your enlightening articles flowing to counter UNESCO's uh, UNESCO Ambassador Finkelstein and his Elks fairy, Ilks fairy tales and their attempt to invent supposed evidence already proved wrong by exper experts in that particular field. Interesting today, as we'll get to, Finkelstein actually comes on, uh, comes to the rescue of uh, some people that would like to undermine uh, what the Bible says, but we'll get to that later. Then he goes on to write again, this is from Kalgoorlie, gold mining town. Western Australia, he says this, looking forward to more discoveries by Dr. Elot Mazar from King David's Palace upon Zion Ridge. I became interested in archaeology when late Yigal Yadin unearthed Masada. And then he writes, yes, I'm of that elderly age, closing in on three score and ten. Following the Hebrew Bible has been a tremendous journey of discovery. And so that's all the way from Kalgoorlie. I've been through there once or twice on my way across Australia with the family back in the day. Then this one comes from Illinois. Dear Brent, I'm excited to email you. I listen to Watch Jerusalem, every new program. I even go to the archives to re-listen to former programs. I'm looking forward to Christopher's information on Manasseh. I have read the United States and Britain in prophecy, so I totally understand when I listen about the lost 10 tribes of Israel. It's easy for me to listen. I have also read many other books by Herbert W. Armstrong. I'm very knowledgeable. Thanks to you all. It's, uh, it is true that by understanding who Israel really is, unlocks the Bible for understanding just totally amazing. I'm also interested 
in archaeology, so I'm glued to the radio programs as well. Again, that's from Illinois. I will say as well, if you haven't listened to any of these, uh, it is good to listen to them because they are about the lost 10 tribes of Israel. We keep on getting numerous comments on Facebook about these programs, uh, talking about, mostly from Israelis, talking about how uh, they're amazed that, uh, well, they're kind of sarcastic, talking about they can't believe that Jews are everywhere but in Israel which is not what these programs are about at all. Uh, Christopher goes in to prove who the nation of Israel is today, made up by Judah, Benjamin, most of the Levites, and Levites as well, those tribes, and some of the others, of course, scattered through. But the Bible is very clear that the Jews aren't the Israelites. All Jews are Israelites, but not all Israelites are Jews. Not all Israelites make up the Jewish state. You talk to any knowledgeable rabbi as well, they would say exactly the same thing. And that's based on the Bible. Biblical evidence uh, of which tribes came back after the Babylonian captivity with Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, Ezra, all of them, they were of the southern kingdom of Judah, making up different tribes. But those northern tribes of Israel never came back, never came back to this land. And so that's what Chris is going into. Where are they? The Bible does talk about them in biblical prophecy. It talks about in Genesis chapter 49 as he's going into that they would make up peoples in the latter days. If those prophecies are for, to be fulfilled in the latter days, could they be fulfilled if these lost peoples were scattered amongst every tr- every nation? No, they couldn't. And so they have to make up modern-day nations for those prophecies in your Bible to be fulfilled. So if you haven't listened to those because you might think it's wild speculation, uh, start listening to them because it is fact-based and it's based on the Bible as well. I would also like to mention before we get into this study that the January-February edition of Watch Jerusalem magazine is available online right now. You can simply go to the front page of our website and request a copy if you aren't already a subscriber, or you can download the PDF there as well to uh, read all of these articles. Most of them are related to archaeology. We have the uh, major piece uh, written by our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry, on Jerusalem's origins. And then Christopher Eames goes into some of the archaeology, the pre-Davidic archaeology that's been found inside Jerusalem. Uh, Brad McDonald and myself go into uh, similar ideas to what we've covered on this program about how uh, archaeology is being increasingly politicized inside the city of David and ancient Jerusalem, which is really overshadowing the importance of the archaeological discoveries themselves. And there is another couple of articles in there as well on the on the top uh, 10 finds from the past year, as well as some uh, articles going into what we expect to happen between Iran and Egypt going forward, by, written by Warren Reinch. So please get that if you haven't got it already. But let's get to this main study I want to cover today. Uh, this was reported all throughout the Israeli media going back, let's say, about two weeks ago now. It came out in the Plus One journal, scientific journal, the actual study, and then it was reported on in different media outlets. Times of Israel had this as their headline, Illiterate Israelites, high-tech review of ancient sherds suggest few scribes. And so this was a study looking at the text that exists on the Sumerian Ostraka as they have come to known, an ostracon, or ostraca is plural of ostracon. It's just a piece of pottery with some writing on it. And so they are reanalyzing about 100 of these sherds that were found during an excavation back in 1910 of ancient Sumeria. This is modern-day Nablus in northern uh, Sumeria today, you could say. And this, of course, was the capital of ancient Israel for centuries. 
and these uh, hundred or so uh, shards of pottery with writing on them were found in a fill of dirt underneath a building at the excavation site. So these were found, let's say, out of context. They weren't found in the position in which they were used. They were found in a bunch of dirt underneath an ancient building, uh, of course, uh, going back hundreds, uh, thousands of years. And this site, of course, as I said, is very famous, capital of the northern tribes of Israel, starting with King Omri and continuing all the way down to the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel by the Assyrian Empire. And so these have been around quite a long time. There's been a back and forth throughout the throughout the past decades of what they exactly are, uh, why they were written. And this is a new look at these really uh, amazing pieces of writing, because there's some of the earliest pieces of writing in ancient Hebrew that we have uh, existing here 2,800 years ago, about from that time. And they're from the capital, the capital of the kingdom. So first, what do these Ostraka say? They are actually quite boring, quite mundane, don't really have any biblical figures' names on them in terms of biblical personality. Uh, although they do have biblical places written on them, which at one time were names, so I suppose they do have biblical names on them. Uh, but mainly they are ancient administrative documents that list a number of factors. The year in which it was written, the commodity being discussed, be it wine or oil, it mentions the name of a person, it also mentions the name of a clan, and the name of a village near the capital of Samaria. So when I say clan... Uh, these are all found in the territory of Manasseh, the tribe of Manasseh. That is the tribe. The clan would then be a smaller subsection of that area, one of the father's houses of the Manasseh, one of Manasseh's sons, and so on, and then a village and, and as well. And so what you've got in these pieces of pottery is basically uh, the year in which it was written, somebody's name, where the stuff came from, and what it was that was associated with this piece of pottery or this written document, let's put it that way. Now, some of these names, as I said, are found in the Bible. All of the names that are found in the Bible are included in the ancient territorial holding belonging to the tribe of Manasseh. So this is this area in and around Samaria and towards the north, further towards the north. Of course, when Joshua came across into the Promised Land, we had a number of tribes that were taking up their land, of the 13 tribes at that point, were taking up their land. Three of those, or two and a half of those, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, East Manasseh, all the way in the north. That's where the Golan Heights are today, Bashan, as it was known in the Bible. And then further going further south, you have the, the hilly region of Gilead, which was made up of Gad and Reuben. So they stayed over on that side, and then they jump over, and they uh, cast lots for the rest of the land, and it's divvied up, and Manasseh gets its portion in and around Samaria. Uh, and that's where the family of Manasseh would be. That's where they would live. That was their tribal inheritance, and that tribe would stay there. Uh, that's They couldn't go and purchase land elsewhere in Israel. They were confined to their territory. And so what we have on these Astraka is different foodstuffs that were, that were collected somewhere in Manasseh and brought to the capital. Let's go to the study now. This was featured again on Plus One in the Plus One Journal on January 22nd. It says this, quote, Despite many years of extensive research, several issues related to the Samaria corpus are still being debated. So basically saying, hey, they're still looking into what these Astraka actually meant. In particular, 
It's not clear whether the Ostraka were composed at various sites in the highlands around the capital and dispatched to Samaria, along with the provisions mentioned in them, or whether they were written in the capital, possibly when the shipments arrived. The former option would indicate dissemination of writing at least in the administrative echelon of the Kingdom of Israel, while the latter would provide evidence for the royal bureaucracy in the capital. So we've got two ideas here. Basically, they could say that you had a couple of scrolls, some people that were out there in the field writing down on this uh, these Ostraka what the shipment was, and that would come with the shipment from the field to the to Samaria. Or you had a couple of people, some people there in Samaria documenting the different foodstuffs that were brought in, the wine and the oil that was brought in, where it came from, who it, who brought it, and so on and so forth. So with this study, what they wanted to do was to help determine the number of authors of these texts. Again, there are a hundred of them. Who wrote them? Were a were hundred different individuals? Did the farmer write them? Or were they written by somebody else? And so they figured a way of determining how many authors wrote them. They basically picked the best 39 of the 100, those that could be most easily read and uh, confirmed, meaning that they knew what the letters looked like and there wasn't smudges and things like that. So they, they picked the best 39. They put them through this algorithm that analyzed the style of the writing, among a bunch of other things. And this same algorithm they had tested on different Ostraka from elsewhere uh, in actually southern Judah in Arad. And they, they uh, also tested it with uh, modern writing. And so they know that this is correct. This algorithm works to 95% a probability. So this is really high. So I'm not d- going to debate the merits of this study. It looks amazingly accurate. Uh, the way that they have come up with this uh, algorithm, there's physicists involved in this study and, and other other smart people. And what they determined from putting it, putting these 39 texts of these Sumerian Ostraka from Samaria through this algorithm, they showed that there were only two authors, only two authors of the entire grouping of texts. And so these two authors were likely two scribes, two scribes from ancient Israel, and they were most likely two scribes that were operating inside Samaria, the capital city, writing down what was coming in, recording the wine and the oil, where it came from, and, uh, and when it came in as well. So let's talk about when these scribes were writing down these documents. And this is fascinating because these are the people of the Bible. These are the people from, as we'll get to, we'll prove the dating here, around 2,800 years ago. And these were part of the functioning government, the royal administrators here in the capital of ancient Samaria. And now writing some pretty mundane things down, but they had to do it, had to keep track of the inventory inside the, uh, inside the palace for the king. And so we can get some more information about these. Uh, some of the dates that were written on this, these Ostraka, there were only three dates, in fact, and the, the regnal years were recorded. That is the year of the king. That's called a regnal year. And there was, on some of them, the ninth year was written, the tenth year, or the fifteenth year. These were the three years that were recorded on these 100. Now, the problem is that it doesn't tell us which king reigned in those years. It doesn't say in the ninth year of Ahab or the 10th year of uh, Joash. 
It just says in the ninth year. So what we have to do is figure out which king was reigning during the ninth, tenth, and fifteenth year. It makes sense that it's all during this, the reign of one king. Now the fact that it says fifteen years does narrow it down because there aren't so there are only so many kings that reigned for fifteen years or more from Samaria. The study says this quote. According to the biblical account correlated with with Assyrian records, so the Bible matches with Assyrian records, we know that only five kings ruled in Samaria for periods of 15 years or longer. Ahab, Jehu, Jehoaz, Joash, and Jeroboam II. And so, as the study goes on to show, it was most likely Joash or Jeroboam II that wrote these, these two of these kings that had reigns of 15 years or longer, because the style of writing on these uh, pottery sherds is ancient Hebrew rather than the earlier proto-Canaanite script. And that earlier proto-Canaanite script still appeared in the years of those earlier kings, in the, the years of Ahav, Jehu, Joaz, and Jehoash, uh, and uh, Jehoaz. So those first three, Ahab, Jehu, and Jehoaz, we still had this earlier script being used. This the script being used on this pottery likely came a bit later. So we can we can then um, narrow it down to these last two, King Joash or, or his or Jeroboam the second. The study says this: judging from the prosperity of the kingdom, the latter option or Jeroboam the second is most plausible. So. We've got these documents written by Jeroboam during the Jeroboam II's tenure, and he reigned from seven around 790 to 750 BCE. This was the leader that was alive during the work of Amos and Hosea. It was a time of, of affluence in northern Israel, a time of religious revival as well. This wasn't the religion of... Uh, Amos. This is a religion that Amos actually condemned. This was the religion of Jeroboam the first. That's what they were uh, uh, getting uh, indulging in. During this period, the borders of Israel expanded as well, and so did the people's sense that everything was going quite well for them. And really, it was. It was, and that's what these documents testify to. An interesting thing that comes out of the study is that uh, there are more. Well, there's less of the less uh, incoming goods in year nine then year 10 and there's far less than in from year 15 so as time went on from years 9 to 15 there was more and more goods coming into the capital which which does make sense from what the bible talks about this reign of jeroboam the second israel was waxing fat <clears throat> in the reign of jeroboam the second and that was happening to the point that these royal storehouses were getting full of wine and oil as evidenced by these ostraca. But there is another interesting detail about these ostraca, and particularly the fact that they were written by two scribes. And what's interesting is that these, these documents, again, they go from the ninth year all the way through the 15th year, and the same two scribes are there working. It's not that one of them did it in year nine and year 10, and then there was a change of employment. The new guy came along in the year 15 and he was doing it then. No, both of these scribes were active for at least six years and they were active together. The study also showed that there was no way uh, of, of, of assigning certain tasks to one scribe and certain to the other. 
It's not like one scribe did all the all the wine and the other did all the oil. It's not like one scribe did one geographic region and another scribe did another geographic region. Now, if that was the case, you could say that these scribes were out in the countryside. You were assigned that area. I'm assigned this area. And let's go and write all these and, and then we'll bring all the store in. No, we have these two scribes performing the exact same function. It's like they're both standing there uh, inside the king's court. They receiving all of this, this wine and this oil. So much is coming in that two of them are needed to do the job. Some guy comes up, you get you deal with him, and then I'm going to deal with the next guy. That's That's what it was like. And so there was too much, I guess, coming in for one scribe. So these two men... For a period of over six years, we're doing the same thing. You could say it was a mundane, mundane task. Maybe they did something else as well. Uh, but they had their their employment, their their employment for about six years. So what's also interesting, I would say, about the reporting on this study, and the 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 study was basically showing that there were two scribes that wrote out these a hundred documents. The basically going through inventory of what was being brought into Samaria, of foodstuffs coming into Samaria, at least the wine and the oil. That's what this study showed, which I think is great. That's it's really interesting, for sure. Now, all the reporting on this though was supposing that, well, since the fact that there were only two scribes, this indicates that Israel was largely illiterate. And you could even see that from the the uh, the title of this piece from the Times of Israel. Again, illiterate Israelites? Question mark. High tech review of ancient sherds suggests few scribes. Yes, it does suggest few scribes for the specific inventory of wine and oil in Samaria. But illiterate Israelites? Again, they have a question mark there. But that's really not what this what this study was is all about, or is even proving. At all. Now, these were, again, a straka that were written in Samaria upon their receipt of oil and wine by the scribes that were in charge of recording it. The study says this, quote, Furthermore, although the astraka originated from various locations in the highlands around the capital and mentioned different clans in the region, the fact that they were written only by two individuals seems to indicate that the scribes were located in Samaria rather than the countryside. Okay, so, the study itself says that these are scribes that are there in the palace. So, if that's the case, and that's what the evidence says, then these ostraca uh, and the study itself do not and cannot give any indication of the literacy level of the rest of the nation. They can't tell you about your sheep herder out in the backwoods of northern, Mes- uh, northern Manasseh or the gatherer of sycamore fruit in southern Ephraim. These these Astraka have nothing to do with that. They're by uh, royal scribes acting at the capital. It can't tell you anything about the literacy of others. Just because there's two there doesn't mean that nobody else wrote anything down. It's really just quite foolish to even posit that because there were only two authors of these Astraka that there was limited literacy in Israel. Again, these are these are receipts of of incoming uh, foodstuffs to the capital. And you would expect them to have to couple people to be assigned to such a job. For example, it's like if I worked in a grocery store here in Jerusalem and I was in charge of recording the incoming supplies to my store and then I put my ledger in a time capsule 
and it was found 2,800 years from now, and somebody opens it, and they put my writing of this ledger through an algorithm, and they find that there was only one author of the ledger, and then they declare that everyone else that delivered the food, that grew the food, was illiterate. The fact that there would be only one author at the destination of the goods has no bearing on the literacy of anyone else. But again, that's not what is chosen to be focused on in reporting again to the to the point of even going with that in your headline, as some have uh, in their popular media reporting of this study. Now, one of the professors... Now, granted, I'm not just going at those people that reported this or wrote on it in the media. One of the professors actually says in the study, quote, our results accompanied by other pieces of evidence, seem also to indicate a limited dispersion of literacy in Israel in the early 8th century BCE. Now, this quote appeared everywhere. Uh, but if you read through the study, it's, it's hardly a proven point. In fact, I believe the study kind of goes against that, uh, or at least it doesn't even, doesn't, it can't infer anything about the literacy of, of other people in, at that time in ancient Israel. Now, Israel Finkelstein, he's one of the authors of this study, he actually discourages such a hasty conclusion in this article with the Times of Israel. He says this, quote, So yes, we need to be careful with conclusions. At the same time, note the fact that in the first half of the 8th century, so when these Estraka were written, we have northern or Israel plaster literary inscriptions in Deir Allah, that's in the Jordan Valley on the Jordanian side, and then he mentions another site as well that we've got inscriptions from this time. And then he says, this shows the ability to compose literary texts as early as the time of Jeroboam II, if not slightly uh, before. And so he's saying, let's not jump to a conclusion here that writing or literacy wasn't going around at that point. This study cannot have any bearing on the literacy of anyone else uh, in ancient Israel. But that is the narrative that is pushed because it tries to belittle and do away with the accuracy of the biblical text. That's always the fundamental goal of, of coming up with a new theory, it seems, these days. It's not, it's not exciting to say that, oh yeah, the Bible was likely written back then. We, have, we find uh, literacy everywhere at the time, or we find people writing down things that show that the Bible could have been written back then. Nobody wants to say that. That's not interesting. It's interesting to come out and say that nobody could read back then, or if they could, it was only a few scribes inside the kingdom, inside the king's court. And this is this is how this piece in the Times of Israel concludes. Uh, quoting the study itself, it says, On the one hand, we observe just two scribes within the large Samaria Inca Straka corpus of the flourishing northern kingdom's capital, with very little supporting evidence of writing skills from other sites in the realm. This may hint, they say, that during this period, Literary literacy was, to some extent, restricted to the royal court. Well, you might write that. It may hint that, to some extent, it was restricted to the royal court, but I don't even think it hints that at, that at all. They're two entirely separate things. Now, I don't get me wrong, I think this study was absolutely wonderful. The fact that you can show that there were two authors writing the same thing, having the same job over the period of six years... It's interesting. It does prove that there were two palace officials responsible for this, documenting the incoming stores in the flourishing northern kingdom of Israel under the reign of Jeroboam II. 
which is clearly supported by the biblical description of his luxurious reign, especially for a figure in the Bible that we that actually not much is written about. He's one of Israel's longest reigning kings, <clears throat> ruling for this 41 years. Yet regarding his uh, what he did, there's, there's nothing really written in the book of Chronicles about him, apart from the fact that he took a census. That's all it says there. And there's about six or seven verses in the book of Kings that talk about his reign, talks about how he expanded his reign greatly because of the mercy of God, because God did not want Israel to the name of Israel to be blotted out anymore. He actually blessed the northern tribes of Israel under the reign of this unrighteous king. And that's why you have the prophet Amos going to him, warning him, and you have the prophet Hosea doing exactly the same thing uh, as well. This is something that Amos told him, and this is from Amos chapter 6 and verse 4 to 6, or at least the people of Jeroboam's time. It says this, You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fatted calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine, wine, by the bowlful, and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. It's interesting there, part of this condemnation by Amos, for all this luxurious life that they were living, it wasn't the fact that they were they had the things that was bad, it was the fact that they weren't grieving over the ruin of Joseph, the destruction that was coming, and the sins of the people. They just saw all the, the blessings, the material blessings, including wine that appeared, that came into Samaria, where an ostraca was written down recording where it came from, that are part of these this corpus of the Sumerian uh, ostraca. Wine was coming in, life was good, but they refused to acknowledge God as the source of this wealth and peace. This is what Todd Boland wrote. I think it's his uh, PhD thesis or his master's thesis that is online. Uh, and um, just he's an archaeologist. I think he teaches at the master's college as well. He wrote this, a piece about Jeroboam II. He said, quote, The Israelites thought of themselves as good religious participants. They traveled regularly to their royal designated cultic centers, places of ancient religious significance, they brought sacrifices and free will offerings of extravagant nature and amount unequaled in remembered history. So times were actually very good for them, but they felt like they did it by themselves. Now, Jonah would prophesy to them that, uh, that this was going to be by the hand of God. This was nothing to do with their righteousness at all, but it was because of God's mercy that they were going to experience these blessings. One final period of prosperity before they would go into Assyrian captivity. Yet the people credited their king, their military victories, uh, instead of God. This is what it says in Amos chapter 6 and verse 13. This is the contemporary English version. It says this, You celebrate the defeat of Lodabar and Karnaim, and you boast by saying, We did it on our own. That was their problem. God was saving the nation temporarily back then by the hand of this King Jeroboam II. But as soon after he died, those blessings were removed. They didn't recognize God as the source of those blessings. And what's worse, they saw those material blessings as a sign that they were right with God, that they didn't need to repent, 
that they everything was going smoothly. Look at all the wine. Look at all the oil coming into our city. There's no need to repent. There's no need to change. They actually flourished in their pagan religion at that time. And before long, after Jeroboam's death, Assyrian captivity took place. It's really dangerous to think that just because material blessings were there, as evidenced by these Assyrian uh, the Sumerian Ostraka, that you or I am right with God. That really isn't necessarily an indication that God is blessing a nation. God just might be being merciful one final time. One final time, as he did in ancient Israel under Jeroboam II. Now, this is really important, especially in terms of the time we're living in right now. Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry, has talked about how The President of the United States does fulfill a role very similar to Jeroboam II. To Jeroboam II, the person that Amos, again, as it says there, is prophesied in Amos chapter 7, would come up against and talk about the prosperity of of Israel and talk to him and telling him that that was gained by the mercy of God, not by the doings of any individual or of any king. And so these, the lesson of these Sumerian Ostraka uh, should really resonate with us today. Now, if you would like to understand more how modern history is really mirroring that time in ancient Israel under Jeroboam II, I do suggest that you read our article on Watch Jerusalem. It's entitled, A Prophesied Resurgence in Israel. That's all we have time for today. Thank you very much for listening in. If you would like to hear your feedback online, you'll have to write to me. And you can do that by emailing letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. I do very much appreciate that and look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget also to head to the website and hit the magazine tab. If you are not a subscriber to our Watch Jerusalem magazine, you'll be able to receive that free anywhere in the world. Thanks again for listening today, and I'll talk to you next week.